0: Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris. This podcast is designed to hold space for honest conversations. From purity culture to faith, sexuality, relationships, identity, culture, deconstruction, and more. My hope is to look doubt in the face, be curious, seek God, and ask meaningful questions to address any elephant in the room with openness, nuance, and grace. I won't pretend to be an expert and definitely don't have all the answers. And though it may feel easier and more comfortable to exist in the black and white, I invite you to discover God with me in the gray and unexpected spaces. So whoever you are, whatever you do or don't believe, you are welcome here and have a seat at this table. Make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective Podcast on iTunes, so each week when a new episode drops, it'll download straight to those devices. And while you're at it, if you feel so inclined, leave us a five-star rating and written review. It would be so helpful to get our message out there. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to the Refine Collective Podcast. I am your host, Kat Harris, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you to Newsstand Studio at Rockefeller Center for producing this podcast. I am forever grateful for y'all. And if you can go ahead and follow them on Instagram at Rockefeller Center or on Twitter, who knows that Twitter just had the best day of their lives recently when Instagram messed up. So be sure you're following them on Twitter, Rock Center NYC. And also I would love to invite you to join my Patreon community. Now, you've heard me talk about Patreon so much, but Patreon is the place that I have the most honest, unedited, raw conversations on the interwebs. These are the conversations that I'm not ready to have on the podcast. I'm having those on the Patreon community. So a few of the recent videos I did, I covered questions like, does Jesus want me to be straight? Why do breakups suck so bad? And do we expect too much for marriage? So just really having pretty unedited conversations over there. So come join for as little as $3 a month on patreon.com slash The Refined Collective. Now... This might seem like a random episode to you guys, but honestly, I don't really care because I saw this movie recently, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and it opened up so much in me. And then I went on a Tammy Faye Baker televangelist evangelist rabbit hole, and I knew I wanted to talk about it. And so I'm talking about... Tammy Faye Baker with my buddy today, Jonathan Merritt. And why am I talking to Jonathan Merritt about this? Well, first of all, he wrote an incredible article about Tammy Faye on The Atlantic, which we'll link in the show notes. But also, Jonathan Merritt is just one of America's most popular writers on issues of faith and culture. He's author of several critically acclaimed books, including... Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing, and How We Can Revive Them, and He Has Also Contributed and ghostwritten Over 50 Books. Now, I about died after writing one, so I don't know how homeboy is doing that, but I have so much respect for him. He is an award-winning contributor for The Atlantic, a contributing editor for The Week, and a regular columnist for Religion News Service. He has published more than 3,000 articles in respected outlets such as the New York times usa today buzzfeed the washington post the daily beast and christianity today that was a freaking mouthful of a resume jonathan
1: oh my gosh well here's the difference i'm older than you so <laughs> you'll catch up one By day
0: how much i feel you can't be that much older than me otherwise you need to tell me what your skincare regimen
1: is uh i will be this my next birthday i'm gonna turn the big four zero. i love that yeah.
0: Love that. So you're only you're only four years older than me.
1: That's true. That's true. Like, but you can do a lot in four years.
0: That is also true.
1: That's also <laughs> true.
0: I mean, how does it feel to be a writer for BuzzFeed and the New York Times? Like what the hell?
1: I know. It is uh, you know, when I started this career. Uh, my parents were like, you want to be a what? I was like, I want to be a religion writer. And they're like, that's not a thing. And I'm like, I think it's a thing. And they're like, it's not a thing. I'm like, I think it's a thing. They're like, it's not a thing. I'm like, well, I'll make it a thing. So um, in some ways, when I was kind of up and coming in this, people really weren't doing it. Now, Mm -hmm. Now there are a lot of people doing it, but you know, in the early 2000s, people were thinking that religion was going the way of the buggy whip in America. And of course, now we know we've got Pope Francis and caliphates and uh, ISIS and the resurgent religious right. And uh, we know that religion is really a durable force in the United States. But 20 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, news outlets were thinking, we can't invest in this. And so mm-hmm. they were eliminating people who who wrote about those things. And, uh, and so I benefited in many ways from this sort of misguided perspective in mainstream media.
0: Yeah, I think something that I've always been curious about the work that you do, Jonathan, and we'll get to Tammy Faye because I'm so excited to talk about her. But what I'm so curious about what you do is I feel like in a very polarizing space, faith, politics, and talking about faith in like mainstream culture, it seems like you've been able to say really, really hard things while also kind of keeping the respect and credibility with evangelical culture for a large part, which and respect and credibility with mainstream culture. Because what my experience has been is it seems like you can... Be one or the other. You either have the ear of culture and your pulse on the heartbeat of what's going on in the world, and then Christians think you're some crazy liberal, or you have the ear and credibility of the church, and you have no space in modern culture to have a credible conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's due to a few factors. One, my family is still very much evangelical. And so mm-hmm. these sort of flat caricatures of evangelicals as kind of hate filled hillbillies doesn't hold up for me because I know and love so many and they know and love me and they're not idiots. Um mm-hmm. we just disagree on a lot of things and there's a lot of empathy that can come from staying in close relationship with people um with whom you disagree. Mm-hmm. I think additionally a lot of people like me who grew up evangelical they became ex-evangelical. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not ex-evangelical. I'm post Evangelical. I've moved beyond evangelicalism. I'm experiencing God in other ways and other spaces, but I'm not out there to uh, sort of burn it all down. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not defining myself by, um, resistance to, uh, evangelicalism. And, and I think, I think that's incredibly important because people can feel that when you write, when yeah. when you're able to give them the benefit of the doubt, when you're able to sort of see them for who they are, when you're able to offer people compassion and give voice to the other side, even if they don't agree with you. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there, a lot of conservative evangelicals who read my work, you know, under their covers with a flashlight, but <laughs> totally. uh, they do read. And I'm really, really grateful for them mm-hmm. that they've continued to hang in there. I, I, I've always said I am far more concerned with the questions I'm raising than the answers answers I'm suggesting. And if people are willing to ask those hard questions with me and wrestle uh, through those questions with me, whether or not they come to the same conclusions that I do, then I, I think I've done my job.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you say that I think of Madeline Ingle and one of I'm so in love with that woman. But one of the things she says is it's so much better or healthier to learn how to ask good questions as opposed to finding airtight answers. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. the older I get, the more I'm like, Man, I just have questions. I don't have as many answers. And so I love that you're doing that. And one quick clarification, because I know I know people are going to ask. And honestly, I don't really know the full differentiation because people ask me, they're like, oh, are you post-evangelical or you're a progressive Christian or whatever? And I'm like, I don't really know how to identify that. And part of me is like, am I just being the millennial that doesn't want to be labeled? But how would you define post evangelical, like you just described, versus ex evangelical? Like, if you could say, this is what kind of makes or breaks both of these.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when you move the but, but you there's a commonality which is uh that you began as a part of this movement what we call evangelicalism which is already a really difficult thing to define. I wrote an article about this for the Atlantic many years ago called What does evangelical mean anyway? And, you know, it almost the 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 definition of that is uh is so obscure and people mm-hmm. disagree about it. Um so but but people who were in that movement and then moved beyond it they're no longer part of that movement the the question is is whether to put it simply whether you're mad about it Um, the people who have left it and they're mad about it and they've sort of villainized it. Um, Mm -hmm. many ex evangelicals are, are also post-Christian, not all, but many are, uh, many people, uh, take it upon themselves. They see it as kind of a personal mission to engage in kind of call out culture, cancel culture, um, you know, regular attacks against evangelicals. I know people sort of Think probably that that that's me sometimes because some people for for them any kind of critique uh, mm-hmm. constitutes an attack any kind of critique um, it, it is conflated with meanness uh, but it certainly is is not what I'm trying to do and uh, you know I've moved beyond evangelicalism but I but I'm able to sort of um, eat the fish and spit out the bones you know I'm able to take a lot of the things that evangelicalism taught me and that it, it gifted me and to retain that. Mm. Uh, a love... Uh, for the Word of God and a seriousness about the Bible. I take that with me, a kind of charismatic impulse in uh, community gatherings and and worship expressions. I take that with me. Um, So uh, being able to sort of see the good in it and also to hold alongside that your disappointments and your critiques, that's going to be really, really important. And and so I don't have a mission necessarily to tear down the church. And you know what? It's a great example. I mean, Mm -hmm. Tammy Faye Baker was evangelical par excellence. I mean, she was one of the front runners of what we know as modern evangelicalism. And the original title of, of this article was The Redemption of Tammy Faye. And, uh, I believe that, that here is an evangelical who had a good heart, who mm-hmm. I disagreed with in so many ways, but was misrepresented, was torn down, was maligned in many ways for her gender, for her appearance. And I think there are a lot of people who, who fail to see the goodness, uh, that exists alongside the darkness right. in evangelicalism. And those people have become sort of loosely a part of this movement that we refer to as X. Evangelicalism.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And man, that's such a such a good segue into talking about Tammy Faye because I don't I don't know how you grew up in regards to like TBN or Christian or Christian TV or whatever, but I didn't grow up in a Christian home. But my dad's side of the family was very religious, very Christian, assemblies of God, you know, just all the things. And whenever I would go to my gaga's house, she always had on like channel 58 was whatever the Christian channel was. And I always thought it was super weird. Someone was always crying. It felt very emotional and gaudy. And I, my, what I internalized about Tammy Faye Baker, it was, that's a crazy woman. Like here's like a crazy woman just out trying to get my money on TV And she has these crazy eyelashes, crying, manipulative. I just felt like really turned off by her as a child. And then growing up, seeing SNL sketches about Tammy Faye Baker. And it wasn't until I saw this movie, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and really researching and watching interviews with Jessica Chastain and seeing her being so compelled to make a movie, a mainstream movie on this what i thought was this crazy televangelist it it honestly just showed me how much i had a one dimensional flattened view of a woman and really didn't know hardly any of the story so i just wanted to hear from you like what was your experience growing up like did you know of Tammy Faye Baker what was your experience of televangelism and then who if you could just kind of recap who is Tammy Faye
1: Yeah, so I I would say one, you know, by full disclosure, you know, I I grew up uh, in the home of a megachurch pastor. My dad was president of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, and he was also a Mm -hmm. TBN televangelist, and to this day is a a TBN televangelist. And so— I had a bit of a window into that world, not a su- substantial one, because we were not charismatic, and that matters. Uh, you know, we were Baptist, and so there was a kind of Baptist stream of televangelism, and kind of a a charismatic one. And those were those didn't fully overlap. There was some overlap there. So I remember seeing Jim and Tammy Faye growing up. Uh, you know, a bit their their downfall. Uh, the downfall of their ministry happened when I was pretty young, and so you know, I I more remember what happened after that. Uh, the sort of the caricatures, the the media frenzy uh, that that came from that, and uh, and so that that sort of is that that was my experience. Um, you know, TBN was a part of their story, but but not uh, the central part of their story. Um, and so, yes, I, I had a perspective of them, which was he was a bad guy, a criminal, and she mm-hmm. was a, a joke, yeah, essentially,
0: yeah. And I think the thing, okay, so I'm going to, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. So you've done all this research on Tammy Faye Baker. You wrote this article. Can you, for someone listening who's like, who the hell is Tammy Faye Baker? Who are we talking about? Can you just kind of paint a picture of who she is, their ministry, what was big about it? And then what was their downfall?
1: Yeah. So prior to the 1970s, there was not much uh, religious TV. It didn't really exist. Some people would be preaching on TV, but there wasn't religious television as we know it. There wasn't a kind of entertainment value to it. You would occasionally have preachers, but it was very rare. Um, but after the 1960s, where you were having these cultural revolutions in American society—the uh, civil rights movement, the rise of feminism, uh, the, the 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 gay rights movement, the environmental movement, uh, the legalization of of uh, of uh, birth control, uh, the legalization of abortion—which came later, I think, in 1974. Uh, liberalism was sort of on the rise, and there were all of these kinds of liberal reform movements that popped up. And Christians didn't, uh, conservative Christians, conservative evangelicals didn't like that. Uh, they wanted to, to do something about it. And uh, so they began to kind of engage with culture in a different way. So uh, one of the things that they did was they began to use television as a way to get their message out. You had a guy named Pat Robertson who first got into this, who, who in the 1960s founded the Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN. And uh, Jim and Tammy Faye, who were, were married, they met in Bible college, they kind of linked up with him, and they really, you know, through a show that they made for children using puppets, they realized if you get children, you get parents, which is still an idea uh, in evangelicalism today, but it wasn't an idea before. They had a very popular show for kids using puppets, and their real innovation was uh, to create a kind of Johnny Carson-style talk show. Uh, So they created what was called the 700 Club. It still today airs on Freeform, uh, which used to be ABC Family, which CBN sold to ABC many, many years ago, and it was in their contract that it it would be required to, to stay on the air. So the 700 Club was the first of its kind, and it created this kind of popular newsy broadcast with a Christian bent. Things soured for them there. They decided to strike out on their own. Uh, They left in the early 1970s. They went out and and founded with uh, a couple named Paul and Jan Crouch what would become the Trinity Broadcast Network with its anchor show called Praise the Lord. Things soured there in a matter of months, and they said, screw this. We're, We're not doing anything with anyone. We're doing our own thing. And so on the East Coast in Charlotte, North Carolina, they founded PTL, ministries praise the lord ministries and there they created uh, a religious broadcasting juggernaut uh, they were the i think the third network in the united states to use satellites and so they had satellite broadcasting to 40 countries around the world uh to uh, 14 million households 20 million households globally uh, they were raising at one time uh, over a hundred, I think, in twenty-nine million dollars, uh, and they had built a theme park called. Um, uh, it was called Heritage. Uh, Heritage? Oh, uh, Heritage Heritage USA, um, not far from their ministry headquarters, which uh, became the third most visited attraction in the United States, next to Disney World and Disneyland. And so by the mid 1980s, they were celebrities. They were very wealthy, um, which was a kind of controversial thing. They lived lavish lifestyles. They were kind of pioneers in that jet setting, you know, m- mansion living. Uh, way of being a televangelist that didn't exist before they were early pioneers of what's called the prosperity gospel, which is this idea that god God blesses people with material wealth and physical health and um, and that's one of the reasons they they believed that They could raise this money that if you gave your money to them, that was part of their blessings and and God would then bless you. Mm -hmm. So there was this kind of pipeline of generosity that was opened up. And, you know, you find this view outside of Christianity, too. You know, the idea that generosity creates a vacuum that will be filled. And so you the more you give, the more you get. You'll find that that view in new age spiritualities and in um in a kind of new thought. So it, it's not just a, a charismatic sort of Christian idea. But in the in the 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 mid-1980s, um they they had a very public downfall. It began with uh, a discovery that uh that Jim Baker, her husband, um, had an affair with a church secretary named Jessica Hahn, very young, I think she was twenty one uh when this came out. The affair maybe happened when she was nineteen uh He called a a televangelist from Virginia named Jerry Falwell uh and they hatched a deal. That he would step aside from PTL and Jerry Falwell would take over for a limited period of time, and then he would move back in. But uh, Falwell claimed uh, shortly after that he had discovered rumors of of homosexual encounters. That he was a he was a bisexual. Jim was a bisexual man and was engaging in these sorts of things. That there was all kinds of misbehavior, and that the ministry was in terrible shape because there was a lot of really shady dealings going on with money. And so they were removed. Uh, It became a massive scandal, huge media firestorm for many, many years. Uh, They were interviewed on mainstream television. They lost their ministry. They lost their livelihood. And uh, eventually, Jim Baker was uh, charged in federal court uh, for the way that he had um, uh, misused his uh, ministry finances, so I think there were uh, 24. If I if I have this correct, 24 counts uh, of fraud and conspiracy, 23 counts of money and wire fraud, and one count of conspiracy. And uh, he was convicted. He was sentenced to 45 years in um, in federal prison. He served five of those years uh, before he was released. He went on to write a book called um, I Was Wrong, where he admitted some uh, of these uh, allegations were true, not all. And Tammy Faye uh, eventually divorced him. She married uh, a real estate developer and went on to sort of live her life as one of the most hated, ridiculed, uh, religious figures in in the late 20th century. Uh, in the final years of her life, she wrote some books. She, she became a reality TV star. Um, she went on uh, a show on VH1 called The Surreal Life, with uh, <laughs> Vanilla Ice and, uh, and others, and, um, but had become a kind of pop culture icon, particularly among the LGBTQ community. She was definitely a, a gay icon and they defended her vociferously. But among the mainstream media, she was considered largely to be a joke.
0: As a culture, we're taught to do really kind of whatever it takes to advance our career. We'll invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into our education. We'll take intern jobs with little to no pay for the experience. If you're like me, you will have moved cross-country multiple times to put yourself out there. But then with things like love, we say, oh, it'll just happen when it happens. And with things like, do I want kids or not? We say, oh, I'll think about that someday down the road. I'm focusing on me right now, or I'm working on my career right now. But what if we were just as intentional about our reproductive health and our fertility health as we were about our careers? Mm -hmm. The reality is women are having children later in life, but biology hasn't changed, and we need tools to understand the future of our fertility. That's why Modern Fertility was created. It's the easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Now, traditional testing with your doctor can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility only costs $159 to get the same information. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash refined, you can get $20 off your test. Also, if you have HSA or FSA, you can use those dollars on Modern Fertility. You'll get insight into how many eggs you have, hormone levels, and other important fertility factors. The results go deep into what every hormone means, and you can also talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse to review your results and options for next steps. If you want kids today or maybe one day in the future, you need information to make the decision that's best for you. So right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners at the Refined Collective $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash refined. That means you get the test for $139 instead of the hundreds or thousands it would cost you at a doctor's office. So get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash refined. Again, that's modernfertility.com slash refined. You know, you're Tammy Faye.
1: I do. I had to do a real deep dive to write this to write yeah. this sto- this story. Um, but uh, yeah, there were a lot of, t- of twists and turns. And of course, you know, I I talk about in the piece. Um, you know, after the downfall, she was made fun of uh, at late night talk shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, eviscerated her. They shredded her. Um, uh, newspaper columnists would make, uh, jokes about her face, mm-hmm. about her makeup. They called her ugly. They called her emotional. They called her silly. Uh, they called mm-hmm. her stupid. Um, you know, Saturday Night Live, as you mentioned, famously sort of portrayed her as this idiot good wife crying off rivers of black goo, uh, mascara from her face. What's interesting is, there is not a photograph out there of her crying her mascara off. It's a caricature, but it's not altogether a real one. She did cry. She cried a lot. She was very she was very emotionally connected. Um, but this this idea of someone just sort of blubbering about and and crying her, her makeup off is, is something that was created by SNL and and was not yeah. altogether rooted in yeah, reality. Yeah, there's
0: so many things that. When you're sharing her story, like little like highlights come to my mind. And first is that she wasn't arrested. She wasn't put in jail. Was she a perfect person? No. I mean, I find it really hard to believe that she was completely in the dark about all of the swindling that Jim Baker was doing. However, he's the one that got sent sentenced to jail, yet she she is the one that basically had her career ruined, her reputation ruined. Yet Jim Baker goes to jail for five years and then to this day has a career. I mean, I looked him up in the last few months. He's actually being sued. I can't remember by what state, by Missouri, by essentially selling snake oil that cures people of COVID like this man is a con man and he has been able to live and thrive and move on with his life. Yet a woman has a, she had a scarlet letter on her chest for the rest of her life because of the actions of the man in her life. And I just think that is such Mm -hmm. an interesting metaphor for how the disparity between how we treat men and women and the different standards. Like, why is she being punished for the, quote, for the sins of her husband, essentially? Like, why was he able to have a career But she wasn't after all this is said and done. And, you know, people might not like what I'm about to say, but the fact that he was sentenced to 45 years and only served five, like, man, you talk about white privilege, the privilege of being a white man (laughs) in our country. And Mm -hmm. I feel the injustice of it as a woman, just it like makes me so upset And then another thing that comes to my mind is we're talking about, I mean, the era of Pat Robinson and Jerry Falwell, you know, the guys who felt their moral and ethical and religious responsibility was to, you know, get the make American Christian again and and to get all the liberals, you know, to stop doing what they were doing. Yeah, we have this woman, Tammy Faye Baker, in this time when women were, were not given a seat at the table. And to be frank, you know, it's 2021. We're still trying to get our seat at the table. But in the 70s, when women really didn't have a voice, she was leading her own talk shows on a Christian network. She scandalously brought a, a gay AIDS patient on her talk show And that's one of her most favorite interviews when no one else would do it. No one else would have on a Christian talk show in the 80s during the AIDS pandemic would have a gay Christian pastor on their talk show. Mm -hmm. But she did. She was doing things that even in 2021 in evangelical culture are scandalous. She was saying, I have a calling on my life too. Just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I need to stay at home. And she fought for her place in in her marriage and in her ministry. And I think when I saw that AIDS, the interview with the AIDS patient in the movie, I was like, this can't be real. Like, there's no way she did that in the 80s. And I looked up the interview and sure enough, like she was having conversations that no one else was willing to have have, or no no mainstream Christian person was willing to have. And so part of me was like, man, I feel like Tammy Faye like walked so things, places like Hillsong could run, you know, like we have Uh female Uh pastors and that can be a normal thing for a lot of people in today's culture. But that's because of women like Tammy Faye Baker, not to mention, and this is... Clearly I'm getting, I get, I'm getting very passionate about this, but, you know, Jim Baker was said to have paid off Jessica Hahn, the woman he had an affair with and out of the pockets of his ministry paid her $265,000 to keep quiet. And yet he never had to make this like public. Well, I mean, he obviously that got exposed. But when Tammy Faye struggled with mental health and hyperventilating and anxiety and depression after her her second child was born and got addicted to um, anxiety meds, she had to make a public declaration and public repentance on TV. And it's like, well... You know, she had to publicly co- confess her addiction and affairs, but Jim just got to be quiet and pay his mistress off. And I just think there's mm-hmm. so much there as far as, gosh, what a misunderstood woman. And what a, honestly, like, what a revolutionary of a woman to, I feel like she just was a freaking fighter <laughs> and a survivor and had this gumption and was a lover of people and refused to refuse to kind of be put in a box. And she was really, really punished by Christians and by culture because of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you you brought up some some big points. One of them is her belief in the goodness of God and the way in which she saw people as people and not as kind of categories. And we can certainly talk about yeah. the way that played out. But your your first point is important, which is the idea that that women have paid for the sins of men um, is is not a new idea. Um, it's not a disputed idea. Um, it's not something that was unique to Tammy Faye. Uh, not even unique to women in that era. I mean, we we can recall Monica Lewinsky, who was essentially branded as this horrific Jezebel, while uh, her the man that she was entangled with went on to be one of the most celebrated uh, presidents in you know the the last. 30 years. And uh, and that is fascinating that you can see that when people get sort of entangled, that oftentimes the man who's more complicit, com- complicit the man who is uh, the one with the lion's share of the power ends up paying some kind of price, uh, but mm-hmm. typically a smaller price. And even though we love a good comeback story, often mm-hmm. the woman is left behind. Um, it, I'll say... If you want to if you want to know just how old this trend is you can go all the way back to Genesis 38 and the story of Tamar uh this this woman who had multiple horrific husbands uh each one who left her out to dry and then uh the father-in-law refusing to take care of her so that she had to take uh, the matter into our own hands if you know the story you know how it all ends up but but there are the, the it is a it is a story that is as old as the bible it is um it is it's a story that is deeply rooted in history and i think that what we have to do is we have to what we're not saying and what i'm not saying in this piece is that tammy faye was perfect or that tammy faye uh, you know doesn't didn't do anything wrong that was worthy of critique. Uh, but what I think that we we haven't been able to do is to disentangle her from her husband to judge her on her own merits. number one. and number two, to we have failed to remember that just like there were some things that go on the center side of the scale, there were some things that never even got mentioned on the saint side of the scale. Uh, you've mentioned some of those and And then the types of things that we placed on the center side, you're ugly, mm-hmm. you're emotional, you struggled with uh she was briefly addicted to prescription drugs, and she was uh you know made fun of uh, because of that uh th- that that many of the criticisms against her um mm. were unfair yeah.
0: I think the question that I have or I have a lot of questions about, about this and about her. But just when I zoom out and think of like, what are the threads and the themes that I see here? And, um, in her, in the documentary. So the movie is based off a documentary that was made in the nineties called the eyes of Tammy Faye and RuPaul is the narrator of it. And Pat Boone in that documentary says it's so often true that Christians are one army that kills their wounded we don't try to nurse them back to health. And so I think kind of on like, if we zoom out a little bit, like the question I have is always like, where do we go from here? And how do we be better? And why why, why does this happen? Why does it keep happening? And I think when I, when I see stories like Tammy Faye, when I see the movie, and even just when I look at my own life, I'm like, and my friends and my real life friends, like, no, this is like kind of a joke, but it's not. I'm always like, man, Christians are the worst. <laughs> like, seriously, like, we say that we believe in this God who is big and gracious and expansive and full of grace, yet often, those of us that identify as Christians, and I mean, listen, I have been, I have been an awful Christian, and I'm probably still an awful Christian every day. Um, but why are we not better at like surrounding people who are hurting? Why is it easier just to mm. make Tammy Faye a joke? Well, she's just another crazy woman. Mm. Why do we do that?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think you're asking two questions that are connected, which is there is a kind of, of anger that you find among kind of secular, quote-unquote secular culture toward mm-hmm. pe- people of faith oftentimes. Um, and, and, and that is uh, often due to what you would call um, emotional mm-hmm. outsourcing. Um, people have been hurt by religion. They've been hurt by the priest when they were growing up. They've been hurt by friends who've used the Bible to shame them or scold them or repress or oppress them. And so they will often outsource that, that hurt to wh- whoever is in the spotlight today. And uh, so it's real pain that you're seeing and it's pain that is justified that you're seeing but it's misapplied mm-hmm. oftentimes. That happens a lot. Um, in the Christian movement, people who are kind of committed Christians who get mad and why we destroy our own, there are a lot of, of explanations for why that is. But one is, is a kind of sense of betrayal that people feel that I trusted you, I I I gave you money and, wow. and I gave you time and, um, you know, that that when, when religion is involved, oftentimes the person of God becomes a kind of stand-in for God. And so we can transpose onto those individuals the same things that we transpose onto God, that you should never disappoint me, that you will always do the right thing, that you will, um, you will be without sin, and then um, those, the, as those perspectives take hold, they obviously lead, inevitably, to disappointment. And disappointment feels a lot like betrayal, and betrayal seeds anger. And so the ways in which these systems intertwine with celebrity culture, intertwined with consumerism, intertwined with broadcast media, radio, television, podcasts, now social media, um, are all kind of conspiring together to create these mechanisms. They're very complex, but there's a lot of answers for for why that is. Both people outside, uh, who maybe they were never part of it at all, or maybe they defected from it, now they're mad about it. Um, Or those who are still inside. And and I think the, the other thing that happens within religious communities, we have to remember that American history has its roots deeply connected to Puritanism. And uh, we are still quite puritanical. Even those who are non-religious are puritanical. I mean, uh, liberal fundamentalists are as as plentiful as conservative fundamentalists. They just have different fundamentals. And they use the same tactics, which is uh, once you deviate from, uh, the sort of set of rules that we, that we've put into place, then you have to be cut off and anybody who is sympathetic to you has to be cut off. And anybody who is sympathetic to them has to be cut off because there's a kind of purity of the movement. And, and it allows us to keep our, our kind of post enlightenment mm-hmm. dualistic frameworks of black, white, uh, you know, uh, uh, good, bad, right, wrong in place. And it makes life very simple for us to say, oh, she's not good, she's bad. So now I can sort her into a category and and I don't have to deal with her humanity. And that's what happened, I think, in this, is that in a dualistic framework, she had to end up in one of those categories. And it was a lot easier for people, both inside the church and outside, to put her in the bad category and what I think is, is that there is another category that transcends uh, that, that, that kind of dualistic framework, mm-hmm. which is the category of human. And we failed to see her as human. We failed to see many women in this era as human. People like Tanya Harding, people like Marsha Clark. And uh, when, when we need a, an easy argument to prove to the world that these people go in that category of bad, of wrong. Particularly when it comes to women, we return to the weapons that we know are incredibly effective. Namely, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're silly, uh, you're emotional. And so there's a trend there. Uh, Those those weapons come out. uh, We use them over and over. And they're incredibly effective. And so as people begin to see that those weapons work, uh, it makes sense to me that we continue to use them over and over and we even pass them down to future generations. And
0: and then we absorb them. Like me as a child, my experience of Tammy Faye Baker was what? She's crazy. She's emotional. She's manipulative. And here I am as a 36-year-old thinking about what do I think of Tammy Faye? And I'm like, oh, she's crazy. She's emotional. And I'm like, wait a second. I'm a feminist. <laughs> I I don't believe in the flattening of a gender or saying someone is crazy for having emotion. But it's like the the effects of what you're describing is in my bones. It's in my neural pathways. Mm-hmm. Like the the effects of the oppression of women, of patriarchy, of of weaponizing against my own gender even is in my own. It's just so even second nature to me. And I think for me, that was humbling to really reflect on why did I think what I thought about this woman? And that felt, Uh yeah, just Uh felt really, just really humbling. Like, Oh, like I'm not better than anyone on SNL who was making fun of this person. I didn't even question my whole life. Why I thought what I thought about this person, she just was a flattened caricature because that's what I allowed myself to be um infiltrated by. Um,
1: yeah and and there and there are historical uh, mm-hmm. explanations for these kind of misogynistic um mechanisms. you know we're talking about women are emotional, women are crazy. Um, you know, typically if somebody is called hysterical, it's a woman. In fact, uh, you know, the the word sort of tattletales on itself, uh, hiss, (laughs) as in hysterectomy. Um, The word is rooted in female imagery. And so it happens in, in the late 1900s. Freud begins to study these kind of Emotional reactions that are happening throughout culture they happen almost uh, often with 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 uh, they happen most often with women who are forced to bear uh, a lot of the trauma in the late nineteenth in the late nineteenth um, century and so uh, they begin to talk about hysteria and hysteria is just the word for the emotional effects of trauma that were almost always given to women. We said women are hysterical women become crazy, women become irrational, women become emotional. And we sort of overlaid psychology and medicine to that. Uh, Those constructs continued for decades. It wasn't until after World War II when we had shell shock, what began to be called shell shock. And really, it wasn't until the Vietnam War, when we began to look at PTSD, that we began to see that uh, these emotional traumas are not Mm -hmm. unique to women at all. That men and women both experience them. They experience them in different ways, but the damage had been done. Uh, you would add 60, 70 years of scientific research of articles that were written of conversations in culture that were written about how women who sort of collapsed under the pressure of life became these crazy erratic emotional quote unquote hysterical people and we have we have more evolved understandings more informed understandings of the ways in which uh, different people express emotions get in, in, in begin to connect with their emotional cores but it doesn't mean that just because we know better now that we can sort of put all of that toothpaste back in the tube. A lot of damage has been done. And by the way, it, 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 it precedes, uh, uh, Freud by, by centuries. Uh, it's something that has gone on for a long, long time. And there, there are incentives to that. If women are emotional, well, then women can't be trusted to lead. You know, there, there, was, there were conversations that were happening with educated, Ivy League educated people as late as the 1990s and the early 2000s, that women weren't qualified to be president mm-hmm. because they were too emotional. You couldn't have a woman who had access to the nuclear launch codes. Mm-hmm. They're just too emotional. That's the gender. That's, that's endemic to the gender. Where does that come from? Uh, It comes, in large part, it comes through psychology and medicine that begins in in the late 1900s. And most of us don't know that. We just go, yeah, I believe that to be true. But why do you believe that, that to be true? And if you're a person like Tammy Faye, who's emotionally connected, who sees a person with HIV AIDS, who has just received what at the time was assumed to be a death sentence, he didn't die, but a death sentence, and you're brought to tears, Today, we would say, you're having an appropriate reaction. At the time, we would say, that makes you unstable. And uh, that was incredibly unfair uh, to her. And she was mistreated. Uh, because of that. But, but in, in reality, this was a woman who reached out to people who were gay and lesbian, who loved people regardless of who they were, who never retaliated against the people who tore her down, who, even though Jerry Falwell was sort of her nemesis, uh, he destroyed her life. Uh, you know, it was reported that when he, uh, when he died in the early 2000s that she wept, um, she she loved even the people who hated her guts and if you see the last interview she gave uh, on Larry King live she was she had been whittled down to 65 pounds with inoperable cancer uh, she was asked what she would say to all of those people and mm-hmm. she said that she loved them and that she forgave them and it was believable because it was true wow. and she died the next day
0: I have goosebumps literally all over my body. And I think what I think of is what, first of all, what a complicated person, but also man, what a person who as imperfect as she was like, it just seemed like she really, really loved God and stayed the course. Mm -hmm. And um, it was messy, but wow. Like I just, I just think like what a picture of God's love for people. Um, So, wow. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for your expertise on this really niche topic.
1: I think we have to tell stories. We, I've gotten to tell a lot of stories of Christians who've given God a bad name. Um, and this is not one of those. This is someone who, on balance, was imperfect, but represented the unconditional love of God in ways that most Christians will never even approach. You know, there's a scene in the movie where she's living um, in Palm Desert. She's in an apartment and there are these boys who are laughing at her and she walks up and introduces herself. She says, hi, I'm Tammy Faye. And, you know, they kind of make it corny. She gives them some headshots of hers and she signs them. But it's trying to get at this idea that she still loved people even who made fun of her. Uh, You know, people would wear the eyes of Tammy Faye or the, uh, I ran into Tammy Faye at the mall, which you can still buy these t-shirts, which is a blotch of makeup on, on the front of a shirt. And anytime she met people who had those shirts, she would walk up and introduce herself and say hello and try to get to know them. I interviewed Jay Baker, her son, for this article. And he said that that story is rooted in truth, but it's not the true story because he was there for the true story. In the true story, she was at a mall And there were some uh, teenage boys who were heckling her, who were making fun of her, who were calling her names. And she walked over, she introduced herself, she got to know them. Um, She took them to uh, the food court where there was a Marie Callender's. She bought them all lunch and she hugged them goodbye and thanked them for her time, uh, for their time. That, That has to be a part of the story. And unfortunately, for all of her life, for most of her life, that was not a part of the story. Uh, We made her a joke. We called her names. And we felt really good about ourselves while we were doing it. But I hope when people read this, they think, good on her and shame on us. Because we can do better.
0: Jonathan, thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, it is my pleasure. And thank you so much for making space for me
0: what a conversation with jonathan i just adore his heart and man the knowledge that he has on tammy faye baker just is so so deep and rich and two quotes that i want to read you one is the last sentence in jonathan's article on the atlantic which is linked in the show notes he says the gay community and now hollywood is doing the job that the church never did and then there's this famous quote that Tammy Faye has in sort of response to her love and acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community. She said, I refuse to label people. We're all just people made out of the same old dirt and God didn't make any junk. And I've communicated it in a hundred different ways in this conversation and, hope, and Jonathan has too as well, but just the humanity of this woman and how much she loved people well. And I think in her story and in her life, what I challenge myself and invite you into as well is, why do we make the judgments we make on people? Do we give people the permission to be human? And can we we commit to being better to loving people without an agenda? to seeing people as whole people, not just in this binary of good, bad, right, wrong, black, white? Can we refuse to label people and remember that we're all just people made out of the same old dirt and God didn't make any junk? All right, if you want to stay in touch with Jonathan Merritt, you can go to his website, jonathanmerritt.com. That's dot com. His Twitter is Jonathan Merritt. His Instagram is Jonathan underscore Merritt. His Facebook is at Jonathan Merritt Writer. Grab his book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. Check out his Atlantic articles. He is a true gem. All right, talk to you soon.